of a series, so we're not going to talk about every attribute of God, but in this series, we're going to be talking about some of the attributes of God. Today, we're going to be in the book of Revelation, which some of you get pumped about that, and some of you are scared about that. I totally understand that. We're going to be, some of you clapping even about it. All right. Revelation chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the scriptures and talk about the holiness of God today. So let me pray. Father, thank you um, that we don't just meet with each other, but we want to meet with you, and that you are here, that you are present. You promise your presence, and God, we want to experience your presence. You make yourself known to us as we open up the scriptures. Will you grow our vision for you? And will you transform our hearts, God? Change us into the people you desire for us to be. As we get closer to you, I pray we become more like you and that you transform us. And I know we just came off of a series. We talked about some real practical, tangible things in our lives and how we relate with one another and marriage and relationships with one another. And now we're going to talk about you and the loftiness of you. And I pray you do even more transformation in our hearts through this series than you did through the last one. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, most of you know that my wife and I have four children, four little girls, and uh, that makes us have to expose ourselves to child entertainment. And you parents know exactly what I'm talking about. You appreciate when they slide in uh, jokes that are above your kid's head, and they're not inappropriate or anything, but it's like, oh, that's an adult joke that you just said there. And uh, you've probably read all the books about loving to the moon and back, and maybe have considered how, many, how much sand is there actually on the seashore, and, and thought through, you know, is the beach busy tonight? If you ever read that book, I say that to our kids all the time. I've seen lots of movies. There was one that came out about two years ago that I actually thought was a good movie. Like, I think I might watch it if my kids weren't present. And it was an animated movie called Inside Out. I don't know if you've seen that movie or not. Some of you from the, the murmuring, I'm assuming, have seen this movie. And what the movie's about, if you haven't seen it, is a, a young gal, an adolescent gal, who's going through some transitions in her life just by the stage of life she's in, but then also what's happening in her life is her family's moving from Minnesota to San Francisco. Her name is Riley. And uh, the way that the writers in the movie tell the story is they go inside of her and personify some of her emotions that are developing and changing through the transitions in her life, both with just where she's at in life and then also what's happening on the outside of her. And talks about how the things that are happening on the inside of us impact what's on the outside. Stuff that's going on the outside can have impact stuff that's on the inside. And they personify these emotions. There's anger, little red guy that's in there. There's Joy, who's been really in charge of her life up until this point, a yellow gal that's inside of her. Uh, there's disgust, which is fun when broccoli comes around or things like that. And uh, there's sadness. And the way that sadness is treated is like sadness will mess stuff up. So we just need to keep her away from everything. And what happens in Riley's life is as she's moving from Minnesota to San Francisco, things aren't going well. And sadness starts getting involved in stuff. And Joy thinks it's her job to keep sadness away. And what they end up doing, long story short, is they go on an adventure back into Riley's long-term memory bank. And they meet this character who's my favorite character in the whole movie. His name is Bing Bong. If you've seen the movie, you know who Bing Bong is. If you haven't, Bing Bong is Riley's imaginary friend. Not totally forgotten yet, but kind of wandering around back in long-term memory bank. Bing Bong is a pink elephant, kind of, with a squirrel tail, and wears a jacket and has these gloves that are kind of like clown jacket and some hobo gloves with no fingers in them, and lots of fun to be around. Has a song. The song basically goes like this. Who's the one who likes to play? Yeah, you've seen it. His rocket makes you yell hooray. And so if you've seen it lots of times because you buy the DVD, the kids just keep watching it, right? My favorite scene in the movie is when Sadness and Joy and Bing Bong are trying to journey back into the control center of Riley's life. And Riley's life is being taken over by anger. She's really upset about the things that are happening. She's contemplating running away and uh, things just aren't going well in San Francisco. And Joy wants to take controls again. But Joy and Bing Bong end up in what's called memory dump. It's where everything's forgotten. 
And so it's this tense moment where you think, is, is joy, this core emotion, going to be forgotten, like no longer a part of her life? And, and they're in this dump together, and Bing Bong has this song and this rocket, which is really a wagon with some brooms tied to it, because he's an imaginary friend. That's kind of what happens to imaginary friend. And if they sing the song, it empowers the rocket. And so they sing the song. Who's the one who likes to play? Bing Bong, Bing Bong. And they start going faster and faster and more excited, but they can't quite get it to have enough energy to get out of the memory dump. So what Bing Bong does is he sacrifices himself. And they start singing the song together. And he ends up jumping off the wagon, and Joy doesn't know it, and Joy ends up getting out of the memory dump, so she's going to survive. But then she looks back, and she sees Bing Bong, and he's waving his arm, and his arm starts to fade away, because he's going to be forgotten forever. And he says, take Riley to the moon for me. And when I was watching that movie for the first time with my kids, my oldest daughter looked over at me, and I had my face kind of down. She knew what was going on. After the movie was over, she said, were you crying? (laughs) And and it looked like I was crying about the death of an imaginary character in an imaginary movie with an imaginary character inside of a character. That's not not why. It wasn't that that such a love I had for Bing Bong. I was realizing these stages, they they go away. They don't stay there forever. And And I was thinking about that with the series that we're doing. And what's an imaginary friend like? Well, an imaginary friend's the perfect friend for you at that stage of life. You, you make them into who you want them to be. They're always there for you. They're fun. They're funny. They listen to you. They want to do the things you want to do. They love you unconditionally. They're always with you. And I thought, that's how a lot of Christians treat God, is they make him into who they want him to be, really. And so they pick the stuff they like about him. He is loving. He is gracious. He is merciful. He will never leave you or forsake you. He does love you unconditionally. And we focus in on those things, though, and we ignore the stuff that we're uncomfortable with or or we don't want to be true. And what we end up doing is we have God's really like an imaginary friend. We've created him in our own image, and and he's there for us when we want him, and and he does the stuff we want him to do, and he's like this imaginary person that we talk to, but we ignore things like his justice, his righteousness, his wrath, his holiness, we, we, we love his love and his mercy and his forgiveness. Well, let me tell you something. You can't truly grasp his grace if you don't understand his holiness. You don't understand his love if you haven't contemplated his justice. It's not until you know these things as a whole that any of them actually make sense. And so what you end up having is really an imaginary God that you've made up. And so my hope for us as we go into this series is that if we think about the magnitude, the weight of God, that our vision for God will grow as a community, not just individually, but as a church, as we talk about these things in our small groups, as we interact with one another in the lobby, that our our vision for God will grow. And as our vision for God grows, our faith will grow, and he'll transform us. And so we're going to look at today one of the characteristics that oftentimes people don't like to talk about. It's it's his holiness. It's in Revelation chapter 4 that we'll go. We could go to lots of places in the Bible to talk about his holiness. But in Revelation chapter 4, we're going to look at the throne room of God where the holiness of God is continually being exalted. And so if you have your Bibles, it's the very last book in the Bible. There's a fourth chapter. There's 20-some chapters in the book of Revelation, and and you'll find it towards the beginning of the book if you have your Bible. I invite you to turn with me. We put some of the verses on the screen for you. But I mentioned earlier that oftentimes Christians have one of two views of the book of Revelation. There are some people that don't want anything to do with it. Too much symbolism. I'm scared. I don't understand what's happening, but I think Jesus wins at the end, so cool. Yeah, and I'll just keep reading, you know, Thessalonians over here. And then there's other people that that's all they read to the detriment of reading the rest of the Bible. And those are oftentimes people that are like, read this verse, and do you see this headline? And it's always like whatever the latest headline was that came out, and it's like, this is happening. And, you're, and they're kind of spooky to everybody else, and there's like these two extremes. Let me tell you what's really happening in the book of Revelation. 
Revelation's written by a guy, the Apostle John. He's the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He's the one that in the scriptures referred to as the one that Jesus loved. He was close with Jesus, walked with Jesus on earth, was with Jesus after the resurrection, was there when Peter was being restored in John chapter 21, has all these experiences with Jesus, lives his life as a missionary. He's currently in exile for his missionary work. Times are right now, it's written about AD 95, are really tough on Christians. They're being persecuted. Emperor worship is a big deal. And so they're trying to, Christians are being forced to, being, trying to force them to say that Caesar is Lord, to bow their knee to Caesar. And if they don't, there's persecution for them. And what ends up happening is that John, while he's on this island of Patmos, exiled for his missionary work, the resurrected Christ appears to him. It's in Revelation chapter 1. He gets this vision, and it says in verse 12 that he hears this voice. It's like a trumpet, like the sound of many waters. In fact, if you have your Bible, you can go back there and just, just glance through the way that he describes the vision of the resurrected Christ. He said, I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, that's Jesus, clothed with a long robe, the golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool. I've not seen a painting of Jesus like this. Like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet, like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From, the mouth, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Now here's John, who walked with Jesus, the one whom he loved. He was there at the, the Last Supper. He, was, he saw him after the resurrection. When he's reunited with his friend... He doesn't run to him and give him a hug. Look at the next verse. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He's overwhelmed by this vision of the Lord. Not just cuddly, not just warm, not just meek and mild. He's afraid. And then Jesus says, don't be afraid. He tells him, write down the stuff that I'm going to tell you. And he tells him some messages for the churches, the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And in chapter 4, what happens is that Jesus speaks to him again and he says, come. And he invites him into the throne room of God. The Bible speaks about heaven over 500 times. But none are as comprehensive as Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. We won't get to chapter 5 today. You'll have to read that on your own. But read chapter 4 with me as we try to grow in our vision of God. I'll warn you, there's no literal description of God in this chapter. There isn't anywhere in the Bible. No one has seen God, but God made himself known by sending his son Jesus Christ in the flesh. John chapter 1 verse 18 says that very thing. But he gives some descriptors, descriptions. Look at it. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this, after this message is to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me, the one that we just talked about in chapter 1, like a trumpet, some rushing waters and a trumpet. He, he can't put words on what he's experiencing, but he's trying to. Imagine how powerful that voice is. It said, come up here. And I'll show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders. And so John's not the only one there. God's not the only one there, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. What is that? We go back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. It's the Holy Spirit in his completeness. 
The Holy Spirit is there. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. Try to imagine these creatures. Full of eyes, in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. So wait, they don't all have the face of a man? And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down, posture of worship, before him who's seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy. All worship begins with an acknowledgement of the worth of God. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You are the creator. Everything else is creation. You alone are different. Holy, holy, holy. When things are repeated in Scripture, they're being emphasized. So you get amen and amen. True, that is true. But three times, holy, holy, holy. The background for this is Isaiah chapter 6. Pastor Seth read it to us when we were worshiping together as we were getting started this morning. It's where Isaiah is in the throne room of God. And he looks up, behold, he sees the Lord seated on his throne. And the angels are singing, holy, holy. The fiery angels are singing with six wings. Four of the wings are just for worship, to cover their feet, to cover their face. And two of them are functional. They're flying around. They're saying, holy, holy, holy. That's the background for this statement, holy, holy, holy. I, I saw one pastor this week. I was reading an old sermon by John Piper. And he was talking about, and this was, an old, it was like from 2003, the sermon I was reading. And he was referencing another sermon he preached 20 years earlier. And he said he preached from Isaiah chapter 6 on the holiness of God, and he was doing an experiment with his congregation. He said, I intentionally made no practical application. Didn't talk about marriage, didn't talk about kids, didn't talk about money, didn't talk about any of that stuff. He said, I just read Isaiah chapter 6, and to the best of my ability, I explained it to the congregation, and then we, we were done. And he said he wanted to see what would happen. He didn't know that that day there was a couple who was dealing with the hardest stuff they'd ever been through. Later, three months later, the husband came to him, said, we were going through, we've gone through the last three months, the worst stuff we've ever experienced in our lives. That day, they had just recently found out that their daughter had been being sexually molested by a trusted relative, and the daughter was under medical care because of the consequences of what had happened, and the, a relative was under arrest, and this couple was sitting there, and they told him three months later, they said, the last three months have been the worst months of our lives, but you know what's gotten us through? It's a vision of God's holiness, it's been our rock through these last several months. And so I can't promise you we're not going to make any practical applications of this passage today. But I hope that as we go back through this passage, unpack this passage, that your vision for God's holiness will grow in such a way that it becomes a rock in your faith. And you look at this passage, you get the three times, holy, 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 holy. There's at least three things that we see to be true about God's holiness from this passage. And the first one is this, that it's the most basic level. Talking about God's holiness is talking about how he is altogether other. He is separate, set apart. And so our first point today is this, that God's holiness means that God is wholly other. God's holiness means that God is wholly other, that he's set apart, that he's different than the rest. It says here in verse 11 that that he was the creator. Everything else is creation. He's set apart in a different category than all others. 
Now, you and I, we're used to setting things apart. We don't like to talk about that in our age of tolerance and kind of the utopian thoughts that we have of how everything exists together and everything's equal, but none of us function that way in almost any area of our lives. I bet most of you here have a toothbrush and won't ask you to raise your hand. Some of you probably clean your toilet with a toothbrush. I bet you don't use the same one. You set one toothbrush apart from the other toothbrush in your house. At least you probably don't want your spouse using your toothbrush for those of you who are married. You don't want your kids using Who knows what your kids would do with your toothbrush? I've seen some of your Facebook posts. You set things apart. If you don't live in a loft, your bedroom is probably not in your kitchen. Why? They have a different function. You set them. They're different. You set them apart. And so we're used to the idea of setting things apart. We have a hard time with God because he's in a category all by himself. Every once in a while, you'll hear people say, oh, we all worship the same God. Some people call him Allah. Some people call him Buddha. Some people call him a higher power. Some people call him the force. May the force be with you. And all this stuff that people say. If you think that about God, you're not talking about the God of the Bible. He is set apart, different than any other. Everything else, false gods included, are all created. God is the creator. So in, in Psalm chapter 86 and verse 8, it says this, the psalmist says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. You're altogether different. Everything about this passage in Revelation chapter 4 screams to us other. This is something we've never experienced. And that's pretty crazy considering this generation. I was just thinking about my phone this week. The Ten years ago when we planted this church, I, I did not have a computer I carried around in my pocket. We had like flip phones. You ever watch a movie now and you see a flip phone? You're like, how old is this movie? Is that a reel? Like, what's happening here? But I can pull out of my pocket my phone, and I can ask my phone to do stuff that is just like, show me the most beautiful place in the world. And do a Google search, and it will come up with the, here's the links, 50 most beautiful places in the world, photos, some language I don't know. 21 most beautiful places in the world, visit Forbes. Uh, there are 20 most beautiful places in the world. 100 most beautiful places and breathtaking photos in the world. World pictures, there's some photos in here. 19 most beautiful places, 10 most beautiful places, 100 most beautiful places. And there's about 49 million links on here. If I change it to um, show me heaven, it comes up with a lot of results, but it's songs and it's stories. We don't have a, a satellite for this. We, other than some stories that are very questionably uh, whether or not they're accurate or not, because they're mostly focused on not who's there, but the weirdness of the experience, uh, we don't get to go there. But in this passage of Scripture, God invites us in because he told John to write this stuff down. And you think about what happens. This voice, that he can't describe the voice. Like rushing waters or like a trumpet? Because those don't sound the same. What's it like? And you get the idea that it's really loud like a trumpet, but have you ever stood at the edge of the ocean and you think about the power? And then you get the rushing, and the voice, and the voice gives this command, come. And we know we get that command throughout Scripture. Peter standing on the edge of the boat. Come, Peter. That's the, one, that's the command. Come, come off the boat. Say about by faith. The, the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22 says this, the spirit and the bride say, come. It's to all of us. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. The one who desires, take the water of life without price. Come. You're invited to come. You're invited into heaven. The only ones that will come are the ones that come through Jesus. It's Jesus' voice saying, come. And he says it to John. And did you notice the first thing that John sees when he gets there? Read verse 2 if you, you've got a copy of the Bible. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 2. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne. The first thing he sees is a throne. 
A throne is a huge theme to the book of Revelation. It's mentioned about 46 times. Just in this chapter, if you've got a translation, it's an accurate translation on a paraphrase or whatever, it's mentioned 14 times. You can go through and, and mark it. The word throne is 14 times just in chapter 4. And there's only 11 verses. And you look in here and you see that he sees this throne. But do you notice that it says that the throne stood? The throne's a chair. Chairs don't stand. Chairs sit. Chairs the throne stood. The throne is a picture of God's sovereignty, his majesty, his control, his almightiness, and the fact that it's standing shows that it's immovable. The throne's always there. And he's always on his throne. Think about these words to these Christians that are being persecuted. Heads getting chopped off. Some of them probably denied their faith. Some people in the church. God wasn't up in heaven. Oh man, I didn't see that one coming. Caesar is demanding to be called Lord. God's not insecure and going, now I need to prove that I'm better than Caesar. So I'm going to prove this to my people. God is on his throne. You know, that means for us, no matter what happens, doesn't matter if it's small stuff, <laughs> you're running late, you get stuck in traffic. God's on his throne. It doesn't matter if you get the flu, God's on his throne. You have a stroke, God's on his throne. Your friend leaves, spouse leaves, God's still on his throne. Whatever happens here, temporary, momentary struggles that we go through. God's on his throne. It can be terrible. It can be the worst thing you've ever experienced in your life. And God is still on his throne. Amen? I don't know what you're going through. I think about the dripping faucet and the little stuff like I'm experiencing. God's on his throne. Maybe some of you are going through some bigger things. I know that. Text message from some folks yesterday. God's on his throne. Someone dies that you love. God's on his throne. You find out you got cancer. God's on his throne. That's, that's, what do you think it was like to receive this message as that church in AD 95 when you're wondering, am I going to deny my faith? And some people have, and others haven't, and Caesar's claiming to be Lord. And then John says, I saw heaven. God's on his throne. But it's not about the throne. It's about the one who's on the throne. So you look at the next part. So you get it mentioned again just in verse 2. Two times you get the word throne in heaven. The one seated on the throne. And then he talks about what's happening, the one seated on the throne. And we know in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16 that God dwells in unapproachable light. And then what we get here are these, it's like descriptions of, it's like he's trying to say, this is what the light looks like, but there aren't really words for saying what the light looks like. See, that's the problem with God being in a category all by himself, that there's none like him, is I can't just say to you, well, it's like, have you ever, he's altogether different. And so what John's trying to do is put words on this, and look at what he says. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper, but not just jasper, jasper, this translucent stone, probably diamond-like, and carnelian, a ruby stone. And around the throne was a rainbow. But it's not an arcing rainbow, it's around the throne, it's a circle rainbow, probably symbolic of God's covenant keeping, like he did with Noah in the, in the Bible when he said, I won't destroy the earth with a flood again, and that was the rainbow, was the symbol of that. And it's really interesting, because chapter 4, talking about the holiness of God, is in a catalyst for what happens in chapter 6 and on, which is God's judgment. But he's not going to do it with the flood. You see the rainbow there around him, but the rainbow's got a, a green glow to it. It had the appearance of an emerald, it says. And you walk back through, look at verse 4. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and were seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments for purity, with golden crowns on their heads, not royalty, but victor's crowns is the word that's used there. And we don't know who these guys are. 
You can read if you've brought a study Bible. You might look down in the notes, and it'll probably say people debate whether these are angels, 24 angels, or is it the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles? And there's lots of theories out there, but we don't know. They're probably people, probably not angels. And they've got these crowns, these victor's crowns there. It says, from the throne came flashes of lightning power and rumblings, which were probably voices, and peals of thunder. And before the throne was the Holy Spirit. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And if you ever have stood at the edge of the ocean, it it appears like it just never stops. And here, is it literally a sea of crystal like glass? We We don't know. But it's immense. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are these creatures. And you think about the description of these creatures. Ezekiel gives a description of creatures very similar. And then you've got the Isaiah 6 description of the seraphim and the cherubim and the seraphim. These different angels, some with fire, these eyes on them, some with different faces, some with four faces at once. And here the description we get. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Perhaps these describe all of creation. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around. Nothing passes their observance. They, they, they catch it all, but their focus is on the holiness of God. Because of these amazing creatures, and all this that's happening, the focus isn't on them. It's right here in verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and then his eternality, who was and is and is to come. Talk about there not being any like him. He's the only one that always was. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect communion, in perfect community with one another. Before there was a beginning, everything else has a beginning. Every God that we create has a beginning. Every idea we have has a beginning. You and I have a beginning. Everything else is creation. God is the creator. He's holy and completely separate. At its very basic level, that is what holiness means, to be set apart, to be in a category by itself. It has its own use. He is, there's none like him. That is holiness. Now for us, that means a couple different things. That means a fascination, because we're oftentimes fascinated with things that are different. Whether it's a different country, a different culture, uh, a different planet. Some some people are fascinated with other life forms out there. Some people like science fiction. There's all kinds of, all the mystery novels. Well, there's a fascination, almost like it's ingrained in the human spirit, with things that are unknown to us. But also with the things that are unknown is a fear. And so I was even just this morning when the worship team was doing their sound check, I was looking at some of the pictures that we put up around this room, and one of them over here is our our Jesus Stronger series, and people put on there, there's different things. One of them's fear, and one person put the fear of the unknown, which is like normal for all of us. And some people try to control that and try to, you know, pretend like they know and predict things and all that kind of stuff, but the reality is within all of us, we've got a fear and a fascination of the unknown. The problem is that what many of us do with that is we try to get rid of the fear. And so we don't talk about these characteristics of God that scare us a little bit, that are other. And we focus in on his love and his mercy and his forgiveness, things that are tangible, things that we experience with one another too. And we forget the other stuff. You know what else goes away? The fascination. God becomes boring to us because he's really our creation. And we get bored with creation. It happens, there's unlimited examples of us being bored with creation. Buy a kid a new toy. They will love that toy for months, maybe even years. But I'll tell you what will happen. One day, it'll end up in a box somewhere in my house, and I'll pull it out and go, Gigi, I remember when we bought this little stuffed animal, Gigi. Hey, don't you want to play with Gigi? Ah, no, throw it away. We're good. But there was a time you wouldn't let go of Gigi. 
And some of us, that's what we do with God. You're pumped about him. You're zealous about him. There are these times in your life where he's, he's just so amazing. But then he becomes like normal and boring to you. And so you put him on, some people walk away from the faith. You put them on the shelf. It's just not, it's like an element of your life, but not really all-consuming part. That is your creation you're bored with. You don't get bored with your creator. You're never done with your creator. There's always facets you don't know with your creator. Now, with your creation, boring. And what happens is when we create God in our own image, we make him like us. But the reality is he's not like us. He's not like us at all. In Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 55, it says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, in other words, he doesn't do stuff like we do, which is why some people get mad at him. If you were God, let me tell you something, you wouldn't be as patient as he is. We wouldn't be here. You'd wipe us all out by now. Think, think about God in perfect communion in the Trinity before time begins. He's living in this perfect relationship. Then he creates these creatures, humans. Their sole purpose is to, to bask in his glory, to glorify him as his creation. And what do they do? They rebel against him. What would you do? Wipe them out. Start over. You would never think to do what God did. I'm going to take my son, who I've been in perfect communion with, who's never sinned. I'm going to make him one of these creatures. And then I'm going to pour out my full wrath, the almighty power that I have on him, so that any that would trust in him, then they could come into my presence. Who would even think of that? None of us would even think of that. What does he say? He says, my ways are not your ways. He says in Romans chapter 5, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we would, that's other. See, God is complete, his holiness means he is completely and totally holy other. But not only is he holy other, he's holy pure. That's what these angels are crying out to him when they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That he's morally pure. He's completely and totally righteous. So that everything he does is Right? Well, do you agree with it, like it, what he allows to happen, what he, his patience, what he does when he inter, intervenes, when he doesn't seem to intervene? It's always right. He's completely and totally right. He's so right. Habakkuk 1.13 says this, You who are purer of eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. He can't even have sin in his presence. He's so pure. So here's where we get into an element of the danger of his presence. The fact that he is pure makes him a little bit scary because we know we're not. And so we read stories in the Bible. Like if you, I was reading this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uzzah, have you ever read his story? David's become king. The ark of God has been with the Philistines. They're bringing it back. And it stumbles a little bit. And so Uzzah, he just thinks he's doing a good thing. He sticks out his hand and he touches it. And God's anger burns against him and he kills him. And we think, oh, I'm glad God doesn't do that anymore. Have you read Acts chapter 5? With Ananias and Sapphira, and they lie, and God strikes them down as dead, because that's in the New Testament. In fact, that's in the church. And there are some people that are sick, and God disciplines those he loves, the scripture says. We don't like to talk about this stuff. God's loving, he'll be, God's good, he's cool, we're good, he forgives, everything's okay. Is that the God of the Bible, is the question I ask you. I'm not saying you lose your eternal relationship with God, but you break the fellowship. He takes it serious. If you're his son, if you're his daughter, he disciplines you. Hebrews. 
And so, so many times we talk about, and it's kind of the church, we're guilty of this, and that we've wanted to create where God's accessible and relatable. And so it's like, come just as you are kind of church, which is, you know, the intent of that is, we don't care if you wear flip-flops or dress shoes. It doesn't matter, which is fine. There's a good heart behind that. But what we oftentimes do in church is then we lose the reverence of God. And we're like, oh, God, we're, it's like, we're good. God and I are cool. I've heard somebody pray before. Hey, God. Like, God's my buddy. Jesus my homeboy. Did you see what John did in Revelation chapter 1? When he... He did walk. They were friends. And when he saw him, he fell down as though dead. And what we do is we lose the reverence for God. And we, we don't want to think about his holiness because it's uncomfortable to us. It's like the other day, I was talking about these little things that have been happening. My wife and I were working on an appliance, which is not a great start to a story, by the way. <laughs> and I thought that we had this thing going well. And it was, it was an appliance that had some water associated with it. And it wasn't flooding anywhere. But every time I touched it, I get this tingly feeling. <laughs> And I didn't understand it at first. Like, I you know, wasn't thinking through it. I was like, my foot, I felt like I stepped on something. It was like, I think it was electricity leaving my body. And I'm down underneath at one time. And I touch it. I start feeling it on my shoulder. I'm like, what is this? Every time I touch this, I get this tingly feeling. So I call my brother-in-law. He knows this stuff better than I do. He lives out in Mebane. And I call him up and I ask him. He goes, it's the ground. Well, while I'm calling my brother-in-law, my wife starts reading on Google these stories about this. Basically, it says, I'm going to die. And so she's like panicking when I get done. I'm like, so then I start messing around. I'm like, ooh, I'm going to die. Like, and to me, it was like a static shock. And then I get down to mess with the ground where he told me, and there was a sticker on there, and I'd seen the sticker before, and it gives a caution sticker, and I was basically trying to, you know, I thought about ripping it off there, but I thought that's probably not a great idea. And it says on there, it could result in injury or death. And I still wasn't taking it that serious, and then my wife said to me, remember, and she said it in a very somber way, your friend, I just had a friend that I knew in high school that died from electrocution a couple months ago. And all of a sudden, it wasn't a joke anymore. And a lot of us are like that with God. And we fool around with our sin. And we, it's, not, it's not that big. God's cool. We're okay. But then something like this happens. Why, why did some people, that's why some people get sick. First Corinthians tells us, you're messing around with communion. That's why some of you are sick and some of you are dying. I'm not saying that's why everybody's sick. There's sin in this world. It's messed up. Don't oversimplify what I'm saying. But what if the, we, don't, we ignore some of these things that are happening? It is God trying to get our attention. What if some of us are being disciplined? He is holy. He is different. He is other. A lot of times we like to say we're not in a behavior modification, so we don't want to talk about behavior. And you see where Jesus confronted the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, and he starts telling them, you know, you clean the outside of the cup, but you're a mess on the inside, and you go to that movie title from the inside out. He's not saying that good behavior is a problem. What he's saying is you can have good behavior. It doesn't mean anything. You need to be transformed on the inside. And when you are transformed on the inside, then it does impact your behavior, but you've got to be in, impacted at the heart level where you get a new heart, which gives you new desires. So then you should want me, and you should want to be with me, and I am holy, and so then you should want to be holy. In fact, not only do we, does he want us to know that he is holy, he commands us to be holy. Leviticus chapter 19, be holy as I am holy, as the Lord your God is holy. You go, yeah, but that's Leviticus. Well, read First Peter then, because it says in First Peter, that's New Testament, be holy as God is holy. It's so not just a bunch of rules for the Old Testament. God desires this for his people. So the question for us becomes, how, how do I become holy? Give me the behavior steps. Tell me the five things I need to do. How many times do I read my Bible? How long should I pray? No, that's not it. You want to be holy? Draw closer to the Holy One. I'm going to tell you, I, I don't know this. The Bible doesn't say this, but I'm pretty confident. When John left this encounter, he didn't run to sin. I'm pretty confident he wasn't worshiping creation right after this moment. That it, as he was close and saw the holiness of God, he realized the worthiness of God. I bet he wanted to just lay his whole life down at that moment. 
You, you want to be more holy? Draw closer to the Holy One. How do you do that? Well, he speaks to us through his word, and you do pray. What's the time? No, 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 no. You're, now you're going to that where we want to control stuff, and we want to modify. We want to be the ones that are God. No, you're not. Just be with him as long as he wants you to be with him. Why do you think the Bible says pray without ceasing? As you're living your life, continue to be in prayer. As you're thinking through your decisions, let the scripture saturate your mind. Meditate on the word so that those things start to inform the way that you think. Be holy, and do you know what that leads to? A lot different than what most of us think of when we think about holiness. It leads to incredible freedom. Most people don't think about holiness, think about like you know, self-mutilation. Uh, you know, being in a monastery somewhere and never talking to anybody ever again. But think about the freedom that comes from being free from sin. Because some of our greatest bondage in our lives is actually sin, whether it's pride and it's slander, it's an addiction, it's whatever it is. See, holiness means those things aren't ruling over you anymore. And when you realize that God is a holy God, do you know what that makes you free to do? It makes you free to trust him. I had a young lady from our church uh, send me an email. She didn't know that I was preaching on God's holiness. And she actually wrote an email. I don't know why I'm sending you this, but I feel like the Lord prompted me to send you these, this email. And she, had, she was a teacher, and she had uh, decided with her students to do some attributes of God. She did 30 of them, but she sent me two of them. One of them was holiness. And she said uh, the way that understanding God's holiness more changed her was, was this. She said, God is holy. When I taught my attribute devotions to my classes, I avoided this one until the very end. I didn't like God's holiness. It only served to demonstrate my lack of worthiness, my dirtiness before him, his unapproachable light. However, it's kind of important, you know. <laughs> I can almost hear her tone as she wrote that. So I had to bring it up with my students. And while I taught God, taught me. All of a sudden, I had a new understanding. God is holy. He is morally perfect and pure. The trait separates God from any other being since this attribute requires perfection. For many, myself included, this holiness produced fear or frustration because when we compare ourselves to his perfection, we cannot measure up or meet the standard. But God transformed her view. She stopped making it about herself. She started to think about God. She said, instead, God's holiness should produce peace in us because it's a trait that guarantees a God without vindictiveness without capriciousness, without meanness in his character. His holiness is why we are safe to entrust our hearts to him. His character is, is unmarred in any way. So we're perfectly safe in his perfect hands. And let me point out something else to you. Go to your text. Who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he's always holy. He's always been holy. He's currently holy. He'll always be holy. Who was and is and is to come which means you can trust him because whatever he decides to do is right, is good, and is out of his love for you because he's without sin. He's morally pure. You can trust him. His holiness also, you see in the text here, you look at verses 9 through 11. That's our third point. His holiness demands a response. It demands we respond in some way. You look at how the, uh, the elders responded here. Look what it says. And whenever the living creatures, those four creatures, give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne and they're singing holy, whenever they sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, look at what happens. The 24 elders fall down before him who are seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and they cast their crowns, the victor's crowns. Here's these guys. We don't know who they are. But there's only 24 of them. Out of all of human history, there's these 24 guys. And they're not going, look at our throne. Look at us. Look at the crown we got. They're falling down because they're acknowledging my honor is no big deal. It's about God's honor. 
And the crown? I give him the crown. Why? Look at verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you're altogether different. You created all things. By your will, your good, perfect, morally pure will, they existed and were created. It all goes back to you. So I I believe you're worthy, and all worship begins with acknowledging God's worth. Some of us don't think God's worthy, if we're honest, because we're bored with God, because he's our creation. When you come into contact with the God of the Bible, you acknowledge he's worthy. He's altogether different. You wouldn't have breath in your lungs if it wasn't for this God. And so you're willing to give all back, all time, talent, money, whatever it is. Whatever he wants, it's his. Because he's God, you're not. He's creator, you're not. Nothing else is. He's altogether other, and that demands a response. So what response will you give? Because you see through the Bible, that's what continually happens. Whenever somebody encounters the living God and they come to a realization of who he accurately is, they respond. That's actually our definition of worship as a church. If you go through our Next Steps class, you'll hear that definition. It's to see God accurately and respond appropriately. And you'll see multiple examples through the Bible. You see Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, like Pastor Seth read earlier. Here's the guy who's going to be the voice piece for the nation. When he sees God... He says, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. He's God's vocal peace to the nation, and he's saying, I am ruined. I'm going to guess Isaiah was more holy than most of us. But he's saying, I'm a sinful man, because he sees God's, and then by God's mercy, God allows him to speak on his behalf. And what's his response? Here I am, send me. Keep reading chapter 6. I'll go, I'll be commissioned. Wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, I'm yours, because he came into an encounter with God. Not because he read, oh, we're supposed to tell people about you. Oh, it's right to do this. Oh, there's crowns in heaven. It's not all any of that. It's just, I see you. I want to do whatever you want me to do. You see, in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus has been teaching, and he's been in in, uh, Peter's boat, and Peter has this miraculous catch, and then Peter doesn't go, hey, let's go into business together, Jesus. You're a good fisherman. I own a boat. This makes sense. No, he says, get away from me, Jesus. I'm a sinful man. Because at that moment, he realizes, this guy is not a guy. This is the Lord. I don't understand all of what that means, but I know he's different than me, and I shouldn't be in his presence because I know me. See, away from Revelation chapter 1, he walked with Jesus. They were friends. He leaned on Jesus at the Lord's Supper. He's the one whom Jesus loved, but when he sees him, he falls down as though dead. So when you see the holy God, you get a, your vision of God starts to grow, what's your response? You can ignore him, but your heart must be incredibly hard if that's true. You can do the natural response that you see lots of people do in Scripture is repent. Repent of your sin. Repent of making God into somebody that he's not. Repent of using him. Like, let that imaginary friend type God start to fade into the distance and let him grow your vision. Apologize to him for the way that you've portrayed him. So maybe you've even told about him to other people before. Spreading things about him that aren't true. Repent and worship. That's the very response we see in this text. Come to realization of his worth, that he's worthy of everything. And so what is worship? Worship's not just singing some songs. The worship team's going to come in a moment, and we're going to sing some songs. Like You guys can come now and come on up here and start leading us in worship. But it's not just these moments we share together in a moment. Worship is the way you live your life. And so, is your life a life of worship? You see throughout the scriptures, I only read to you or quoted to you uh, Leviticus chapter 19, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 about being holy. Read Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Be transformed. It's a, it's your holy, that's your holy, pleasing sacrifice to God. Do you live your life this way as if, as if he's actually worthy of your time, 
And think, think about as a church leader how hard it is sometimes to get people to serve for an hour a week. <laughs> what if your life was just service all the time? If your money, and you hear pastors and people, you've got to tithe, give 10%. What if 100% of it belonged to God? However you wanted to use it, whenever you wanted to use it, God. Your talents, all that you are, if you, if you realized how worthy he was, if I realized how worthy he was, that's how we would respond, a life of worship. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to respond to him. And I want you to have freedom. I want us to have freedom as a church to worship. And so if you need to repent, you repent. You stay seated and repent in your seat. You and the Lord can do business and talk to each other. If you want to come up here to the front and kneel down and you don't want anybody to talk to you, that's fine. You can come up here to the front and kneel down. There's going to be some songs that are going to be sung. If you want to talk with a person, have a couple of prayer coordinators. They'll be in the back corners. They'll have a little thing. I can pray. I'll pray for you. I'll help you. They'll be back there. They're going back there even right now. If you want to worship, stand up and worship. Just sing songs. They acknowledge God's greatness. They acknowledge God's worth. They acknowledge God's holiness. And if you have a different response, then I couldn't even predict. And respond that way. Some of you might need to trust Jesus as your Savior. I'd love to speak with you. I'll be right here in the front. And if you want to come talk to me, you don't know how to trust Jesus as your Savior, he's acknowledging your sin before him and your need for his holiness. And he can give you that holiness through what his son Jesus did on the cross, wash you clean of your sins and forgive you. I'd love for you to respond that way.